Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Socrates tells us the unexamined life is not worth living. We can't improve and move forward without an understanding as to where we are. My guests today are on firm ground as they look to the future of healthcare. From where to how healthcare will be delivered, deep thought has been given to our future. While anyone can speculate as to the future of medicine and healthcare, few, if any, are more qualified than my guests to do so. Your time is about to be well spent. Prepare for a great ROI with this episode of Sound Practice. My guests today are Stephen Clasco and Ken Terry. Stephen Clasco is a physician, author, and educator. Dr. Clasco has been a university president and dean of two medical schools. Ken Terry is a national expert on healthcare policy and practice. He was senior editor at Medical Economics. He's the author of multiple books related to the healthcare field. Stephen and Ken, welcome to Sound Practice. Great to be on Sound Practice. I, love, I actually love the name. So it's great yeah, to be yeah. part, part well, of a set of practice. Well, speaking of names, I've got to say your new book, which is Feeling All Right, How the Message in Music Can Make Healthcare Healthier, is a fabulous title. Um, Stephen, can you tell me why you wrote the book? Well, I started I started my career as a DJ and got fired as a DJ. Um, and my minor my major was broadcast journalism, my minor was chemistry. And uh when I went back to Lehigh University after I had been fired, so what am I gonna do? And said, you're obviously not gonna be a DJ, but in a weird way, you've taken enough chemistry courses you could apply to be a doctor and take medcats. And I said, Well, why would I want to do that? Because again, you're gonna need a job and you're not gonna be a DJ. So that's how I started. Um, that's how I got into medical school. I actually got into medical school just 15 seconds because the interviewer was an OBGYN, which I am now, and we do a lot of bursts between midnight and five. I was a midnight to five DJ. I was a little Stevie Kent in Philadelphia. And when he saw my one pager, he wasn't impressed by my MedCats or my science GPAs, but he saw little Stevie Kent WISP. He goes, oh my God, you're little Stevie. I've almost missed some deliveries listening to your stories. It'd be so cool if you came to our medical school. So when, when I realized that I became a doctor and eventually a dean and a CEO and a president, partly because of my DJ world, I thought it'd be really cool to, to find the right person to write a book with, which was Ken, around bringing those two worlds together. The one interesting fact was we originally wanted to call it Stan Alive, uh, how the message in the music. But um, as lawyers will do, one of the lawyers thought that the Bee Gees would sue us. I reminded him that two of the Bee Gees have passed away and the other one is sort of, you know, a little out of it, but that didn't help. Feeling All Right also happens to be a song, but we were lucky that the lawyer had never heard of that song by Joe Cocker, so they allowed him to come through. Why did you use song titles at the beginning of each chapter, and how do you think message in the music can improve healthcare? Yeah, th th thanks for that question. I think, you know, this is what I found, um, that um, music brings people together. And I think Ken, Ken, when Ken and I started research the book, we recognize this. When, when COVID hit, I ran an 18 hospital system. We had the largest COVID load of any place in the, in the Northeast. We had a trifecta of a financial tsunami, COVID, 
and the George Floyd protests. And um, I communicated with my 35,000 employees through songs. Every Friday, I would do a playlist. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, we had angry people during the George Floyd protests. And I remember putting out a song called, and we talked about this in the book, um, Choice of Colors by Curtis Mayfield. If you had your choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? And I, I got these emails back, probably 200. Well, I noticed you didn't include the revolution will not be televised, you know, et cetera. That's how we're feeling today. And what was fascinating about it is I realized that people were, were talking to me as a DJ. And as a DJ, they had every right, whether you were an environmental service worker or a faculty member or a nurse, to say, hey, I have a better song than you. If I had done this as a CEO writing an email, they would have just rolled their eyes and said, you know, look, I'm not going to get involved. So I think it started to hit me that that can bring people together and we can use songs to send a message that isn't as threatening. So if you think about the first chapter, Courage to Change, you know, by Sia, do you have the courage to change? I mean, that's the question for every health system CEO today when they're losing $250 million or $150 million a year. And they're sitting there saying, instead of taking any risks, let's, let's, you know, let's keep our slow road to obsolescence. So I think, I think the way that Ken and I were able to write this, we were able to use the songs as very strong messages, but it's a lot less threatening when you're saying Simon and, Gar Simon and Garfunkel keep the customer satisfied versus just making a statement that hospitals are the least consumer-centric part of the, of, of, of the sectors of, of, of anything. Absolutely. Um, you're right. Music does bring people together and, and start a conversation in ways that um, other things do not. So very interesting. Can you tell me why you believe that most care now provided in hospitals will move to outpatient sites, including the home? I thought this was a, a very interesting point of your book. So you know, I, I worked at Apple in the, in the early 2000s, and you know, the genius, one of the geniuses of Steve Jobs was his willingness. You know, Apple stock was 15; that was about 8,700 splits ago, and I didn't keep any of my options. Um, um, uh, but uh, so I'm not that smart. But um, but he talked about the old math and the new math. The old math being computers and operating systems; the new math being this digital lifestyle. Now you got to think: in 2003, people were going. Hey, dude, you're either crazy or on drugs because that's our entire revenue. And he actually was on drugs. He wasn't crazy. When I got to Jefferson and, you know, I, I took over a, a large health system and a university. And I said, the old math is inpatient revenue, outpatient revenue, in-person tuition, NIH funding. The new math is going to be literally strategic partnerships with digital health companies, et cetera. I got the same thing. You're either crazy or on drugs. Opposite of Steve, I wasn't on drugs, but, you know, I might have been crazy. The fact is, all you have to do is look at one medical getting sold to Amazon for $3.5 billion. I mean, one medical is not this amazing company. <laughs> it's basically saying every single health system has failed at primary care. I need an appointment. You know, you know, I, you know I, gosh, I'd like to see somebody. Yeah, how about two Wednesdays from now? One medical? You know, literally, you sign up for $99 through AI. They pick a doctor for you. If you need to see them today, tomorrow, it's done. We could have done that. You know, so, so the answer is it's going to happen. There was a Harris poll. It, it's, it's in our book. 
There's a Harris poll. 62% of people think we specifically make healthcare complicated to, to not get care. Right? I mean, so, you know, we have a broken, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable system. And, and it's not like, it's, it's, there's not like, well, but I wonder how that could be. It's everybody benefits, but from us having a broken, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable system. During COVID, think about this, people died at home because they didn't have broadband. Insurers quadrupled their, their net operating income because people died at home because they had actuarialized that people would get care. Hospital systems got killed because people died at home and, and didn't, didn't get care. There's no way on the planet that you would have the payer, the provider, the employer, and the government be four separate things that just don't talk to each other. So, so the simple answer to the question is, us, Haiti, and Bangladesh are the only three countries in, in, in the world where matern maternal morbidity and mortality have gone up over the last 10 years. We spend four times more per obstetric patient than any other country. And why? Because we've done this to benefit, you know, pharma and, 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 and health systems and insurers, you know, and, and hey, by the way, if you don't have broadband in Philadelphia, there were five zip, zip codes where 60% of people did not have broadband. And, 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 and we're the home of Comcast. So, so the issue is we haven't really, really, really wanted to solve health problems. You know, we've wanted to say we're the best healthcare for people like you or me or Ken, which we are in the world, um, but we're not the best health system. We're not even close to the best health system. Yeah, that's um, some pretty shameful statistics there, right? Yeah, and, and, and by the way, the whole issue of, you know, it's not healthcare at home or outpatient, it's healthcare at any address. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, wherever you are, you should be able to access healthcare. I mean, you know, we, we have one of these things, you know, um, you know, that's how it should be. And by the way, telehealth would still be an anomaly if it wasn't for COVID. And, and here's, you know, and again, I know I sound uh, like an angry guy, but, you know, we're already seeing clawbacks on telehealth because some of the insurers are deciding, you know, it's, it's bringing up the cost of care. Why? Because more if you can access more care, you're going to use more care. And, you know, that's not always, that's not always good for everybody. I mean, and what's happened is we created this huge now mistrust. I mean, how many people believe today when um, President Biden you know, said, good news, Moderna and Pfizer are making some new, uh, new vaccines, everybody should get one. We have an unprecedented percentage of people saying, yeah, I don't believe that. Moderna and Pfizer's stock has gone down and they're making up something. Now, we never used to think that. And I'm not saying at all that's happening. <laughs> so let me make that really clear. But, but the fact that, that there's even people that think that's the case. Um, and, and you know, one of the things we talk about in our book is how the trust factor has gone out. So one of the things we have to recognize as we start to talk about generative AI and large models, and I'm doing a lot of work with that in my new role at General Catalyst and others, is trust is so much more important than technology. If we knew that Facebook wasn't just so I could see my unbelievably cute grandkids in Providence, 
it was going to affect elections and spew hate, we might have put some guardrails in. If you don't think LLMs and Gen AI can either be the most amazing thing that's happened to health, including for the underserved, or be this you know devilish thing that will be misused by people, both of those are possible. And the issue isn't stopping it. The issue is putting the ethical guardrails in at the beginning. Ken, you want to weigh in on uh, on this? How how we address the uh, general level of cynicism that we have in the in the country towards certain areas of healthcare? Um, well, you know that that's a very large question that we could we could probably spend the rest of the session on. But I, I really wanted to comment a little bit more about um, healthcare moving to the home. Um, you know, first of all, since uh, CMS uh, began allowing hospitals to move some of this care to home, uh, you know, with the help of telehealth and, of course, um, actual uh, uh, clinicians visiting the patients, uh, a number of health systems around the country have begun doing this. I mean, it's become a real movement. Um, so clearly, um, you know, there was a need for it, but it just, um, you know, because Medicare didn't cover it, uh, hospitals didn't tend to, to look, take it seriously. Um, and the other thing is that I think that uh, we should remember that population health management is becoming more important. And, and as that happens, um, health systems, physician groups, and, and other people who are taking um, financial risk for care are going to want to know what is happening with patients um, after they leave the hospital on a more continuous basis. And also, people who have uh, various serious chronic diseases in between doctor visits. Um, you know, we're, we're not seeing uh, yet um, the uh, widespread use of remote monitoring, but um, we expect that that will happen as uh, you get more uh, AI-based applications that can parse the data and uh, automatically bring actionable insights to clinicians at the point of care. It seems to me that in general, technology is um, the the hope of of technology is is overestimated in the in the near term and underestimated in the in the long run. Uh, do you think that that's true? And if so, how how does that play out with medicine? Well, it certainly is true, and something that uh, Steve often talks about. Um, I think that um, you know a, a great example of that really is is the current. Um, uh, debate over AI. Um, I mean, certainly a lot of AI applications, you know, have been around for years, although it's gotten more notoriety with the advent of uh, chat GPT and gener generative uh, AI. Um, and, and everyone is saying, well, we've all got to move to the AI and, uh, and yet, you know, they really don't know how to do it. And, and there hasn't been enough research yet to show what kinds of things may be safe? Um, I mean, there, in general, you know, we've seen that uh, you know AI applications um, can identify a, um, a diagnosis, you know, probably correctly as often as a medical student or a resident can do. But uh, we need to, you know, really uh, investigate this in depth at a granular level before really uh, using this for clinical decision support. Um, on the other hand, there are things like, um, you know, AI use in um, uh, radiology scans, uh, you know, analyzing radiology scans and deciding 
you know, where the anomalies are that have been shown to be, you know, pretty reliable, as, as reliable as a radiologist's uh, report. So yeah. uh, I'm sure you have more to say about that, Steve. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I think, um, you know, I was on the advisory board of IBM Watson when, um, uh, in 2016, and we said, yeah, hey, it's going to take over the world. You might as well not have a job. Um, you know, and that got sold for parts. I think large language models are different. And, and here's where they're different. I mean, um, we in in the company that I'm working with in LLMs, um, they've they've brought in millions of recorded conversations in 50 different languages. So for 18 cents an hour, we will now we will now have a nurse that will be able to do a pre-op check-in with you. Um, where, which is exactly the kind of things that nurses, you know, don't like to do. They want to do nursing stuff. And when you look at the crisis in, in, uh, workforce and the staffing levels, a lot of it is because of the things that nurses are doing that they really don't want to have to do. So I think the, the, the ability to start to use the robots and, the, and, and large language models to do that. Imagine a nurse at 18 cents an hour that knows everything about you that can call you up and say, I, you know, you're having surgery tomorrow. I have to ask you some questions and tell you what you need to do. You're having a colonoscopy uh, in two days. Here's what you need to do. And we'll literally, without any prompting, check on you at six o'clock and say, did you start your preparation, et cetera? Is there anything that you need? Among seniors, you know, we have an unprecedented amount of people going on to Medi Medicare. Um, the ability, you know, uh, for eight, again, 18 cents an hour, our large language model will be able to talk to a senior for an hour. Um, uh, and as as this gets better and better, it'll be more and more empathetic. And so much of, of, of senior care is around loneliness and having the ability to talk to someone. The second thing that I think is going to be amazing is is, is wearables. Not, not, you know, five Apple watches and three aura rings, but the T-shirt that I'm wearing will basically send continuous, seamless data. You know, you know, we talked about this in the book, but my car gets better care than I do. My car literally sends continuous signals. I was on a nine city tour last week and um, um, I got back to Miami and I turned on my car and it was, hey, Steve, while you're away, my right front passenger tire got a little low. You know, could you fill it up? Meanwhile, in two weeks, I'm going to have a physical. Somebody's going to take my calcium score, my blood pressure, four or five other things and tell me what I should do for the next 18 months. Now that's asinine. Like nobody's. I'm 69 years old. Nobody has any idea what's going to happen to me six months from now. So the ability to, so the combination of the large language models, the ability to start to create wearables that will continuously not just send my pulse and my temperature. I mean, you can imagine in a in a in a pandemic situation, literally the moment that my temperature went up a little bit, you know, having the large language model say, "Look, Steve, you know." We, we're sending you a home COVID test and Plaxivid because your temperature just went up, you know, 0.7 degrees. And that's an early sign of, of, of the pandemic. That, that's, that's what's happening. And then the whole issue, the third huge disruption is around 3D printing. I'm helping to lead a company. It's a, a conglomeration of 3D systems, which is the largest 3D printing company in the world and United Therapeutics. We are now bioprinting lungs for, for uh, bioprinting organs for transplantation. So um, we have a bioprinted breast that's going through human clinical trials post breast cancer. We have a 40 trillion voxeled bioprinted lung that uh, that uh, a pig will be living on 
uh, in October based on its stem cells and, and lung cells. And we'll be ready for clinical trials, hopefully in five years. So 15 years from now, you know, your grandkids will be saying, is it true back in 2023, if you needed a kidney, somebody needs to take out that kidney? That's like, seems really barbaric. So those are like just three examples, getting back to your short-term and long-term, that are happening now that are going to more than incrementally transform healthcare. That's amazing. Um, amazing to think that that's our, our future. It seems to me that healthcare systems could benefit by working with and, and helping tech companies test new new products. Um, you talk a little bit about this in the book. Maybe you could go into more more depth. Ken, do you want to start on that? Um, I think this is really more down your alley. Okay. Well, yeah. So, you know, look, uh, you know, um, the book I, I, I co-wrote prior to the one I wrote with Ken was, was with Hey Montanasia, who's the CEO of General Catalyst, you know, now the largest venture capital firm. We have about $35 billion um, uh, in, in companies. Um, and the concept of that book called Unhealthcare, a Manifesto for Health Assurance was, you know, basically exactly what you're asking. What if a CEO of a 197-year-old academic medical center, which what I which is what I was, and the, and and a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, which is what Heyman is, you know, basically had a baby. What would that look like? Um, and what we were able to do at Jefferson is really, you know, if you think about a, a Hims or any of those conferences, health, you know, you have 928-year-old founders saying, "Buy my company and it'll transform healthcare." Most of which isn't true. So I decided I didn't want to be a vendee anymore. And in fact, I had written an article called I'm Never Getting Fleeced Again. Concept was back in the mid-2000s, I worked with a telehealth company. We were the first partner. I helped advise them. It was when I was a CEO at University of South Florida. And after about two years, the founder called me and said, Steve, I want to take you out to dinner. We couldn't have done it without you. We couldn't have done it without USF. Literally, you were the reason that this happened. So why do you want to take me out to dinner? Well, you know, we just got valued at $2 billion. And I said, well, that better be a hell of a dinner. And they said, well, <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm also going to send you and your team four fleeces. So the concept of never getting fleeced again. So the concept of if, if, if you're a health system, and most health systems are losing money because the old math doesn't work. Um, if you're a health system and you're going to, across your enterprise, put in, you know, a digital health solution or population health solution or any things that are a large language solution. Um, you ought to be able to co-invest and co-develop that. And if you think about a company like Lovango, which was a GC company that got sold for $18.4 billion. And you think of all the early health systems that worked with Lovango to make that happen. The traditional way of doing that would be, oh, that's nice. I'm glad, I'm glad you got sold for $18.4 billion. And I'm glad we could help. And by the way, that was okay when every health system was making three, four, and five percent margins. Now that the average health system is losing one percent, you know, if there's going to be 30 or 35 billion dollars, you know, every year spent on digital health, and especially now with with AI, I think it's important that that health systems get into that game. Your book has a novel proposal about how to reform healthcare financing and delivery without adopting the the Medicare for all. Ken, can you give me an overview of, of how you propose that? Sure. Um, 
Our basic insight is, is that no fundamental healthcare reform uh, is possible unless it keeps the major players mostly whole and harnesses the power of consumer choice. Uh, our proposal concerns healthcare financing, but it would also change how healthcare is delivered. Uh, that is because hospitals and physician groups would have to take financial risk as part of the transition to value-based care. When they do that, the whole game changes because their facilities and services become cost centers rather than profit centers. Um, so our model would, would blend the public and private sectors into a single system while leaving space for private insurers to thrive. Uh, ambulatory care would be provided by competing primary care-driven groups that would charge subscription fees subsidized by the government and employers. So in effect, each group would have a budget covering all the services they provided, uh, ordered or contracted for. Uh, hospital care would be covered by insurance under a setup similar to the global budgets that hospitals had in Maryland for many years, except it would also include post-acute care. The government would subsidize the premiums for those in Medicare, Medicaid, and other public programs, along with people who didn't get this catastrophic insurance through their employers. You know, that's basically how it would work. Very, uh, very interesting. Uh, Steve, you think physicians should have uh, some skin in the game, financial risk in, in uh, providing care? Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, first of all, let me make sort of one blanket statement. We have lied to docs, and I'm one of them, um, uh, that's both a doc and uh, they have lied to docs for, for 35 years that technology will make their life easier, you know, starting with the epidemic, you know, we're going to spend $300 million with an EMR, it's going to make your life easier. Well, it didn't make their life easier. In fact, we they had to hire scribes just to get back to the, you know, doctor-patient relationship they had before. And now, you know, they're literally, for no, no compensation, getting... 120 messages a day, um, you know, from patients and to answer questions, you know, and again, and with all due respect to the legal profession, there aren't too many lawyers um, that I know that, that, that have taken up that same, that, that same tack. So I think the, the concept of, of doctors starting to look and say, how, how, do, how do we become part of a different kind of system where we, where we are, thriving along with, with the other parts of the ecosystem. You know, the hospital started to acquire them, you know, so everybody's looked out for themselves. And I, I'm, nobody's crying for doctors. I mean, there's a lot of things around the compensation of doctors that are really mismatched. I mean, why should a dermatologist make eight times what a family medicine person would, would, would make, right? Why should an orthopedic surgery make 15 times what a, what a family medicine and in fact, you know, as we start to talk about accountable care organizations, I remember going to my chair of family medicine saying, good news, you're going to get to be the quarterback of our ACO. And I remember she said to me, she said, you know, Steve, you pay me like the kicker. You pay your orthopedic surgeons and your neurosurgeons and dermatologists like the quarterback, but then be the quarterback. If you want me to be the quarterback, we started um, a, a place, uh, a health system for 200, for about 160,000 seniors in, in mid Florida called the Villages. It's in essence, think about this, a patient-owned primary care-driven health system without, without a hospital. I mean, we, 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 were, we were, the dependent area was a hospital and specialist. We hired 50 amazing 
primary care docs, paid them like specialists to actually provide primary care as a quarterback. And it's done incredibly well. So getting back to Ken's thing is our health system is geared for the hospitals, the specialists, the insurers, and the pharma. Oh, yes, and the patients. But, you know, that's after those four. Um, and I think what's happened is doctors have said, hey, you know, you know, where are we in that in that whole continuum? Our our time is together is wrapping up and, and there's so many fascinating uh, points of of your book. I want to end on one question related to social determinants of health. Why are social determinants of health so important and how can programs to address them uh, reduce health care inequalities? I can take this one to start anyway. Uh, you know, social determinants of health, such as food, transportation, housing, and social support, affect somewhere between 20% and 50% of health. That's uh, twice as much as healthcare does. Uh, so any organization that seeks to improve individual and population health has to pay attention uh, to what's happening to their patients outside of the doctor's office in the hospital. They must also develop intervention strategies, such as hiring social workers and referring patients to social services. So now you ask, how does that affect health equity? Well, health inequities have many causes, including racial prejudice, but they are usually rooted in adverse socioeconomic and environmental factors that have a disproportionate impact on certain groups. So to the extent that the government, insurers, and healthcare providers can ameliorate those conditions, especially for high-risk patients, they will reduce health inequities. Yeah, and I, I think I think what I would add is uh, is just that you know um, we have to get population health, social determinants, health equity from philosophy to the mainstream of clinical care and payment models. I mean, nobody is paid, you know, for 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 those things, and until that really starts to happen. Um, you know, nothing's going to change. There's a great Upton Sinclair quote. It's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. We get paid for providing sick care. And, you know, I'll give you another example. We had done a survey at one point where we looked at, at health systems websites and what their boards were saying. And then we looked at how the CEOs got paid. And, you know, the, the, I remember what, you know, it was, what is our health system about? Diversity, inclusion, community engagement, quality access, social determinants. So I, I interviewed the CEO. Oh, wow, that's great. And I, I just saw the website. So you must get paid based on diversity, inclusion, community engagement, access, quality. Uh, you know, oh, no, I get paid based on EBITDA, hospital census, do the doctors I play golf with like me, and U.S. News and World Report. <laughs> so the issue is, you know, the, 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 the concept of the paper was, if you want to look at what a hospital is going to look like 10 years from now, Look at how the CEO gets paid and ignore what's on the website or what the boards say. So the, the fact is, just like the, the example I give in Jefferson, we changed our mission from being the, being the premier academic medical center in Philadelphia, which really nobody cared about other than me and my mother, um, to we improve lives. And I made 25% of my incentive based on reducing five health inequities in Philadelphia. And that changed things for us because that was clearly putting some of our you know, money and mission where our mouth was. Excellent. The book is Feeling All Right, How the Message in the Music Can Make Healthcare Healthier. I think from this discussion, uh, you should have lots of new readers. It is a fabulous book. 
thank you both for being on Sound Practice. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. My thanks to Ken Terry and Steve Clasco for their time and great work. They present an entertaining and smart look at where healthcare is going. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin went from Kapow.